You're listening to Sport, Digital and Social with Mr. Richard Clark. A hundred times out of a hundred, we wouldn't respond in any way, shape or form. It's only thinking about the brand or the organization and the audiences that matter to them and making sure that you're not just letting rumors and innuendo and inaccurate versions of a story get shared without any recourse of the fact as we know them. They have to have anecdotes, they have to have stories, they have to have examples that they can, can draw upon to bring stories to life. Who's going to believe someone who just says, sorry, sorry, all right, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, but just keeps doing the same thing over and over again? Hi, Richard Clark here. I'm a sports digital consultant working with clubs, leagues, rights holders and athletes. One of my former jobs was a senior director of digital media and communications at the Colorado Rapids in MLS. Now, these two disciplines should be natural bedfellows in any organisation. Should be. Often, the digital team does not understand the communications team, and often... The communications team doesn't understand the digital team. The relationship can become especially strained in times of crisis. So in this podcast, I asked a friend of mine, who specialised in the stickiest wickets in sport, to pick out the most difficult communication crises of 2017, how they were handled, how they might have been handled better than the issues ahead of us in 2018. Now David Alexander can introduce himself in a minute, then we'll crack on with the interview, but remember... Check out those show notes at mrrichardclark.com, including links to David and his company Calicus. You can find me at Mr. Richard Clark on all social media or via my website, of course. Here's David. Hi, my name's David Alexander. I started my career as a sports journalist working for local, national and international publications and news agencies. Uh, after working for a few years for large public relations agencies, I decided to set up my own consultancy with a focus on sport. The agency is called Calicus, and we focus a lot on crisis communications. We also work with some international and national federations, brands, sponsors, and organizing committees. But a lot of the work we do is in the crisis communications sphere. Hi, David. How are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you? I'm not bad, thank you. Thanks for your time today and your willingness to talk about Calicus and in particular the management of crisis communications within sport. So what I asked you to do ahead of this was to to give some examples of crisis communications or, or crisis issues within sport throughout 2017 for us to just talk around and discuss uh, what happened and what was a success, what was not a success, and your thoughts about how to do things differently. Um, the first up was Sharapova, Maria Sharapova returning in 2017. Now, she was banned in the end for 15 months. I think it was a, it was a two-year ban, but it was backdated, for a positive test, a drugs test. And then she came back. What was really the crisis issue about her coming back? Was it was it managing that story as a whole, or or the or the issue of her coming back into the into the limelight, back to playing and and trying to make that a better for a, a better story for her? I think where Maria Sharapova is concerned, I think there was always an element of resentment around her because it's very clear that that business is a primary focus for her. So there's a reason why. Uh, no coincidence why she was the most successful female athlete on the planet, despite others making a lot more in terms of uh, trophy wins and world rankings. She was the one bringing in all the money. But there was always an element of resentment about her. And then when the story broke in 2016 about her use of meldonium, I think a lot of people sort of rubbed their hands together and went, right, well, we've got her now. And she can she go back and, and just be a, a pretty face and, and not darken tennis again. And I, I guess associated with the fact, although she's based in the States, she com- comes from the former Soviet Union, from Russia. Given the, the challenges that Russia has had over doping over the last few years in particular, I think a lot of people thought, well, you know, she's, she's got Eastern European heritage, therefore she must be guilty. So she comes back. She starts to do okay, um, got through but in a number of, of tournaments, but I don't think she won anything too substantial. But there was understandably some criticism of her. I think the, the noisiest early on was um, Eugenie Bouchard, who 
I think it had to play um, Maria Sharapova at one point, branded her a cheater and said she shouldn't be allowed to play the sport again. Now, I'm I'm very much in the camp that if you deliberately cheat in any sport, deliberately take drugs, then there should be lengthy bans, if not life bans, depending on the seriousness of the crime. Where Maria Maria was concerned, I think, there's certainly an element that a team of her size should have done more to make sure that they were uh, on top of the the rules and that it was a massive error on the part of her team not to have taken seriously the revision of the rules from when Meldonian was uh, uh, legally um, admissible. Now, she did come out at the time. She, she was very much on the front foot with the story. She talked about uh, the fact that she'd accept her punishment, but that she was totally innocent of willingly taking taking anything for performance enhancement. Her stories created a little bit of doubt where she was saying she had a heart condition, which may or may not have been true. But there are lots of examples, and I'm sure we'll talk about one a little bit later, where athletes at the height of their professional uh, success are pushing the boundaries as far as they can without breaking them in order to try and give themselves any advantage that they can. And I suspect that that might well have been the case where Maria Sharapova was concerned. During the time she was off, she went off to Harvard Business School. She did marketing, all sorts of qualifications and things. And then she launches her own brand of chocolate buttons or tablets or what have you, which then end up being a huge business success for her. So despite the fact that she had lost over a year of her tennis career, she's still, on the one hand, credit to her for using her time productively, and on the other, it didn't seem to have damaged her brand as, as badly as it might have been expected to because her own Sugar Pover products continued to fly off the shelves. She was very um, diplomatic when Eugenie Bouchard attacked her. She said, well, you know, I'm... I hear everything that everyone's saying to me, but I'm not going to to rise to it. I've got to show, I think, I'm going to show some grace, she said, which was the right approach because you don't want to be getting into ongoing, long-running arguments with people because it creates more cannon fodder for unscrupulous journalists to to create headlines from. But I think it's very interesting that, that given how her career has uh, took took such a, a dip when when the Meldonium controversy occurred. Her ability to sell products and to make money doesn't seem to have been affected at all. So you're painting that as a success, really, that she's she's certainly, if not a success, that certainly she'd insulated herself by her previous performances and the way that she acted when questioned. She, yeah. she did a good enough job where she actually came through it. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I said at the time that I thought that she took control of the story. She broadcast, she ran a, a press conference and she broadcast on social media her, um, uh, her revelation that she tested positive. She didn't wait until the International Tennis Federation broke the story themselves. She took ownership for it. For it. She was in, entirely in control from the word go. And regardless of whether or not people think she was telling the truth or not, her version of the truth, which I do actually happen to believe, her version of the truth was proactive and controlled enough that actually it hasn't damaged her. I think that there are, even these days, regardless of the uh, the playbook, as it were, for how to deal with crisis, crises and with crisis management, so many people want to shrivel up back into their shells and hope it goes away or say as little as possible. We're actually giving some clarity, even if she had done it and she'd held her hands up and said, you know what, I've been doing this and I'm wrong and I want to fix this one way or the other. The way she she faced it head on actually minimised, in my opinion, any commercial damage that uh, might have occurred if it had been broken by a third party and if she'd she'd hidden in the shadows rather than facing it head on. Yeah, I remember because when the story came out, well, the, the initial story was, I believe, Sheriff Hoover called a press conference and people were suggesting it might be a retirement 
rather yes. than anything to do with performance enhancing drugs. And you talk about the communications playbook, certainly for the crisis communications playbook, is a number one to get out in front of it or, or does it depend on the circumstances? I think whatever the circumstances, once an individual, a team, a, uh, a brand, whoever is aware, a governing body is aware of a crisis, get out front, uh, front ahead of anyone else, be as quick as you can. There's no such thing as the golden hour now. You know, there used to be a time where you'd be able to say, right, well, we'll wait an hour or we'll wait a day and we'll plan what we're going to say and what we're going to do. That's impossible now because boomers break on social media, stories spread like wildfire. You just don't have that time. So the fact that she was able to break the story before anyone else, I think, is is the way that all organisations, individuals and federations have to approach things. If they've done something wrong, hold their, hold your hands up and say that you're going to, to start an inquiry as well as cooperate with anyone. If you haven't done anything wrong, then, you know, just offer sympathy to anyone who's been affected by it. But make sure, again, that you are going to learn lessons from something that you've been associated with one way or the other, even if it doesn't actually happen to be your fault. You've got to show some understanding for, as I think Maria Sharapova did at the time, you know, she she wanted to maintain, I mean, she said, I didn't want to respond to people trashing me by trashing them back. She didn't want to get into fights, but she also knows what the reputation of tennis is. That's not what tennis is like. It might be different in boxing or even to a certain degree, football, soccer, for instance, but tennis isn't like that. And she didn't want to take it down that route. And she knew she had a responsibility to the sport as a whole support which I think she does care about but she wanted to do the right thing and make sure that she was uh, as proactive as she as she could be I think the circumstances where you have to hide and not say anything are really can only be those where there is security issues at stake where saying something is is entirely inappropriate and in the sporting world that's very unusual you talk about social media being so important in changing the narrative or maybe the speed of narrative should we say but social media is full of rumor full of gossip full of comment you can't respond to everything so you say you've got to get in front of it you've got to get out there but you can't get in front of every single rumor. you can't respond to everything so how do you choose what to get out in front of i don't think it's a case of choosing what to get in front of i think if you are aware I mean, as, as, an, as an agency, we will monitor the news on all different platforms, social media, online broadcasts, traditional print media. We'll monitor all those things to see if anything crops up that may affect our clients or involve our clients that we're not aware of. When, when social media breaks a story, hopefully, in most circumstances, a client has already let us know. I don't think social media is an, is an area where which we use to react to a crisis but if something is already out there which we have not yet communicated on but which uh, the general public or other media sources are starting to comment on we need to make sure we're on the front foot as soon as possible now if of course you don't want to be responding to every rumor and you, there are certain things which from a commercial or a uh, security or confidentiality uh, perspective you you can't respond to but i think if there's a crisis a a fully full-blown crisis what i'm saying is that when a crisis breaks you have to make sure that you are on the front foot and communicating that you know we talk to a lot of clients about having a dark site so that means that they turn off if, more more for brands but they turn off their brand site so if anyone goes to that site instead of saying hey look at our site buy this buy that they uh, they're seeing a site which reacts very specifically to a specific crisis that they may have um, be encountering at that time, where statements are placed, which are then shared on on social media platforms, so that the people that they want to speak to, whether that's fans or investors or uh, whoever, it can be informed about what's going on. It's absolutely not the case that if we're seeing lots and lots and lots of criticism or rumours or what have you about a specific client that will be saying, right, we've got to respond to this, we've got to respond to that. And in fact, you know, one of our clients at the moment uh, seems to be a, a great target of trolls 
And that's just the way it is. And and 99 times out of 100, in fact, probably 100 times out of 100, we wouldn't respond in any way, shape or form. It's only, you know, being thinking about the brand or the organization and the audiences that matter to them and making sure that you're not just letting rumors and innuendo and inaccurate versions of a story get shared without any any uh, any recourse of the facts as we know them let's move on to our next crisis uh, issue should we say a sporting crisis issue bradley wiggins now of course it's it's in a similar ballpark but it's different that personal medical history was released by the fancy bears a, a hacking group i believe believe they come from russia or they're linked with with russia certainly and he's done nothing wrong vis-a-vis the rules the issue is these uh, therapeutic use ex- exemptions and the questions surrounding that so how did you think that was managed and in what ways is it different to the Sharapova case? Cycling is a sport that has gone through a huge reputational crisis over the last 10-20 years the biggest icon in the sport Lance Armstrong was found to have been doping he maintains that it was something that everyone within the sport was doing and therefore he was no worse off than anyone else. It's just that he was the most successful and therefore, and the poster boy for the sport. So he got the greatest criticism. He also used his illness as a bit of a lever to sort of build on his own brand and the Livestrong brand. When um, Team Sky came along, they were painted and positioned very much as an entirely different culture to that which cycling had been surrounded by over the previous years. They were going to be whiter than white. Everything was going to be put in place to make sure that there would be no criticism, no doubt, no controversy, nothing that would justify their um, any any questions over their success whatsoever. Now, Team Sky, I think it's it's right to say, have been the most successful cycling team over the last few years. And they've done that by being absolutely, absolute machines using the latest technology and insights and data and everything they can in order to be as successful as they could be. And they have. So when a package is discovered or, or there are rumors about the contents of a package, which has no documentary proof about what was in it, when there are questions to be asked, and all of a sudden, the whiter than white slick machine finds that there's a fault at a time when there is, um, you know, the sport is still in a period of recovery. I think that has, Team Sky have set themselves up to be so perfect, almost overly so, talking about, you know, Sir Dave Brailsford, the, the chief talking about marginal gains, the position that they put themselves in was to be so perfect that whatever the truth behind the administrative mistakes that have caused uh, the the loss of data around the, the mystery package has, has thrown the whole integrity of the, the team into question. Now, the Bradley Wiggins Um, maintained his silence until after the UK anti-doping investigation, which took 14 months. And they have said that there's there's nothing more they can do because they can't find any proof one way or the other. And um, and Bradley Wiggins came out talking about the living hell, the witch hunt, um, whilst at the same time, Damien Collins MP, who's head of the, the Sports Select Committee, said that there was no exoneration because just because the proof hasn't been forthcoming doesn't mean it it doesn't exist. It's it's a very murky uh, and complicated situation. But I think what Sky, you know, I think Sir Dave Brailsford admitted it himself. They went from being a very slickly run, very well communicating, very good communicating organisation to one that found themselves unprepared or having missed a beat when it came to how they communicated or how they investigated the contents of this mystery package. And it has just raised more questions that haven't been answered yet. And just because UK anti-doping have said that they they haven't been able to find any evidence yet, they also said that their investigation was hampered by detailed medical records. But 
I think you know there's there's probably still more developments to come in that in that story maybe maybe in years to come but I think it's it's one of those things where the fact that they had previously been such good communicators and the fact that they had always set themselves up as so slick and so professional in the way that they ran the organization has meant that that for for that um level of perfection not to be maintained has really undermined their credibility in the sport and i'm not sure quite how easy it's going to be for them to come back because until unless if their own internal investigation little only external investigation cannot identify the records that will clear up what was in this jiffy bag which has been at the subject of the investigation then what does that say about what else they have or haven't got control of and you know how how clean and how uh, how much integrity they can they can they can claim to have they they've left so many questions unanswered they 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 didn't have a coherent messaging policy from the word go it's just it's just been a mess and it's such a shame to see because you know i think rightly everyone who is a fan of british sports me included has been delighted to see how well they've done and now there are questions that that you know i think there's doubt there and i don't think that they have they have cleared that doubt up well enough what could they have done differently i think in the very first instance uh so dave brailsford's answers to many of the questions were muddled confused i think he was i don't know if it's a case of him being caught off guard or whatever he, he was not his usual self in terms of having a clear coherent and consistent response it was all a little bit confused a bit defensive there was no real consistency with what they were saying it was almost as if well you know we can't keep an eye on everything you know some sometimes things things slip through the cracks when they position themselves as the team for whom that would never happen and it's a great it's a great shame i you know as i say i'm not sure quite how they are going to recover from this but as soon as they heard that there was an investigation or question marks about the jiffy bag they should have done their own quick investigation or identified what was going on and just been a little bit more committed to their answers whereas it was all a bit fluffy and wishy-washy and full of doubt and just denied the the professionalism that you would expect from an organization as well run as British Cycling claimed to be. It says something about sport that, that the first three issues I'm throwing up in terms of crisis management are to do with uh, performance enhancing drugs. But the next on the list was Russia and the IOC. So just tell us the story of that, the issue surrounding it and how it was managed. Well, it's, it's, it's a very recent development. Uh, the IOC had an executive board meeting which was going to decide whether or not Russia would be allowed to compete at the Winter Olympic Games in Pyeongchang next early next year. There were a lot of expectations about what they would do because obviously Russia is a huge nation. They have they're a, they're a huge commercial market. They have a huge number of journalists. They've won a huge number of models uh, medals over the years. It's you know, it, it's a, it was a real test for President Bark from the IOC about what he was going to do. The, the end verdict was that Russia would be banned from the Games as Russia and that individual athletes could request to be able to compete subject to very strict doping controls and transparency, which I think was absolutely the right course of action from the IOC you know they had to take a firm stance they do believe that there is um, there has been state-sponsored doping going on in Russia for many years and as a consequence of that that they needed to take to take a hard line if for no other reason than to warn others that if they do that if they're discovered to have done the same thing they will suffer the same fate you know Russia has Russia has has pleaded innocence and they have been very critical of the decision. There have been um, numerous individuals since who have asked whether or not 
clean Russian athletes should be able to perform under the Russian flag because if they win medals fair and square in Pyeongchang, they'll be considered to be neutrals rather than representing their country, which is the obviously a, a dent. My feeling is is that um, having worked with international athletes and sports administrators who, when they were athletes, were were banned from or not given the opportunity to compete at Olympic Games because of boycotts or nationwide bans of, of one type and another. I think it's very, very hard for anyone who works for four years at the peak of their fitness to to then be told that they're not going to be able to compete. You know, they're suffering for the misdemeanors or the political intricacies that have nothing to do with them. So I think what the IOC have done here is absolutely the right course of events because uh, they're giving clean athletes the opportunity to compete without just uh, rushing aside the endemic problems that Russia has had over doping over the last few years. It's interesting because I've seen it written that it's a bit of a cop-out, uh, that there was a, a backdoor entrance for Russian athletes, albeit that, that it was under a neutral flag. But, but but what do you do if you're a, if you're a clean Russian athlete and you know we don't want to tar them all with the same with the same brush if you're a clean Russian athlete because everything you do will be seen under that gaze of the the wider state sponsored doping that we've read about you know so so what do you do to manage that if you're a clean athlete I think I think that from a communications perspective and again this is what what Team Sky used to do very well you need to be completely transparent you need to have consistent genuine messages which you repeat regularly so therefore if you're an athlete competing in the downhill skiing and the rest of your team have been banned because of drugs um, drug use in the past and substances then you make sure that you are available for every test. You don't forget one because you were asleep somewhere because actually you're exhausted. You make sure you have all the safeguards in place. You ensure that, that in this age of Facebook Live or Instagram or what have you, that you are documenting yourself as you can far more easily these days. The the clean routines that you go through, the, the doping tests that you have out of competition and in competition to just do everything in order to try and show those who are watching, whether they're your fans or or cynics, that you are doing everything by the book and almost that you're going beyond that in order to ensure that no, there is no reason for doubt. I think that's, that's the way I would advise athletes who are going to Pyeongchang who have that doubt if, they're, if they are former representatives of, of Russia. You know, document everything, be transparent with everything tell your story, explain why clean competition matters to you, explain how how you feel about the doping controversy in a way which instead of positioning yourself as a victim or an, uh, an innocent bystander, you're doing everything to make sure that you are clean and that you understand why the integrity of sport is fundamental from a brand perspective, from a national perspective, from an international federation perspective, and from a commercial perspective as well. Because if these athletes want to get the commercial sponsorship deals that are going to enhance their incomes, particularly in the sports where um, they're not making huge sums in the way that perhaps soccer players do, but even they want um, commercial deals. But you need to represent the brands that you are being paid by. And you can't do that if you're seen as someone who's cheated. So when you're in that position with an athlete, how much do you sit them down and just drill it, drill different questions, drill, drill different scenarios? Is it is it that face-to-face contact, putting them in a mock press conference, a mock journalist talking to them? You're, at, you're acting as, as the journalist and running through questions and then personal tuition to get an athlete ready with their plan of attack almost. Yeah. No, that's true. But what I would say, just to qualify that, is it's not coaching people to know how to 
answer difficult questions in a way which will be most convenient for them. It's about helping them to tell their story um, in a credible but entirely sincere way. I think, you know, there's, it's got to be authentic. You know, we absolutely would never um, condone or um, promote any anyone stretching the truth or spinning um, what's going on in any way, shape or form. What we would do is pressure journalists as much as we um, uh, put them in a position where they're being interrogated, the lights are on, it's warm, the questions are coming thick and fast, so that they, they're in as hostile an environment as they can be, so that when they're being asked these questions, they, they know how to answer them in a genuine and, and sincere way, but without getting wound up, which is part of what some journalists are trying to do. And you talked about the importance of an athlete keeping their reputation clean and their image clean for brand endorsements and football players want want brand endorsements um, and, and athletes from sports with less of a profile want endorsements as well. So with football being football in this in this country, but also in most of the world, is yeah. it is it a case of keeping them very clean because and i mean clean as in as in not attached to bad images not as in doing anything wrong just just keeping their their image as positive as possible so you you keep them with as a as a as a as a positive but if you're dealing with an athlete from a a slightly lesser known sport you've also got to keep them positive but also a little bit more interesting because those that money is going to be harder to find do, do you tweak it with different sports because in football they're going to come to the footballers in you know badminton or something it's going to be harder to get those bucks i don't think it matters what sport it is to be honest i think in football for instance there are you know there are players i think the the um Deli ali is a good example neymar messi um, on the international level, for instance, who have um, a, a significant number of individual sponsorship deals, which bring them in a lot of money. Now, the brands that work with them want want to be associated with those individuals, but they also want to um, to know that those individuals are going to be representing their values. I don't think it matters whether it's Sydney Winks, badminton, downhill skiing, or, or football. Every single brand wants to know that who they are paying is representing them in one way or another that is going to enhance and build brand loyalty and interest amongst the audiences that they're trying to sell to. And I think that's one thing where the Sharapova story was was such a shock because you don't get uh, stories like that in tennis. Tennis has always been, you might get the odd bad boy who, who um, plays up a bit. You know, we had McEnroe in the in the past and um you know we've got others now but i think pure and simple this has been very elegant clean sport in terms of a clean brand um every individual it is an individual sport therefore anyone who gets sponsorship has to behave themselves in an in, in an individually uh, respectable way and full of integrity but i think that's the same of all sports and but and where football is concerned you know, obviously it's a team game, so you might get one or two stars within a team who get more attention and more brand deals than um, than others. Everyone still needs to be aware of the fact that if you step out of line, brands aren't going to want to associate themselves with you as much. And yes, of course, from someone who's playing badminton or tiddlywinks or what have you, they need the money more because they're probably not earning 100000 200000 a week they still need to think, you know, why am I being sponsored by this organisation? Why are they giving me money? What's in it for them? And it's not just front row tickets and uh, a, a few fo- nice photos with a, with a celebrity or a superstar. They, they want to sell more products. It's all about the money. Can media training make an athlete boring? Well, I would like to think not. I always say when we're talking to athletes and, uh, and, and even sports administrators and and business executives, they have to have anecdotes, they have to have stories, they have to have examples that they can can draw upon to bring stories to life. I think the worst sort of uh, interviews are those where individuals don't say much. 
you know, I, I think if you look at um, Jose Mourinho, the Manchester United manager, for instance, perhaps more in his early career, but even now, you'll get lots of press conferences where he'll say something interesting, he'll say something that maybe likes to touch paper to try and wind up the opposition. He says all sorts of different things that are of interest. And because he has the success to go with it, the brands attach themselves to him and he has plenty of his own individual sponsorship deals, which isn't particularly common amongst football managers and coaches. But then you occasionally get a time, as he, as we see when he was at Chelsea um, in his second spell, where things were going wrong in his second full season, he was totally fed up. And I think he probably realised the writing was on the wall and that he wasn't going to be staying there long. And as a consequence, you know, I can remember a few interviews on British on BT Sport where he would his answer would be one and two words and he was very fed up. Now, a lot of people would think, right, well, whatever question I get asked, I'll just say one or two things and I won't say anything more. Well, that doesn't work in today's world. You've got to you've got to have a personality. You've got to bring things to life. And um, if you don't do that, then we'll go somewhere that that does and even when you think about football teams they will they will often negotiate the image rights or a percentage of the image rights deals with the players that they sign because those deals are worth a huge amount of money and help them to get back their investment above and beyond what the performers do on the pitch let's get back to your role as a, a crisis manager of communications and staying with football Wayne Rooney an issue that was front page and back page was he was caught uh, drink driving uh, recently yes. and of course there was a, a a marriage issue as well there because he, there was a, a young lady in the car with him at the time when he was caught drink driving so as I say that story was front page and back page it's it ran for a long period of time uh, eventually Mrs Rooney came out and addressed it um, having had um, a period of reflection as they say and there was pictures of of have they got the wedding ring on? Have they not got the wedding ring on? All that kind of thing. So how do you how do you address something like that? I think it's Wayne Rooney is um, uh, a classic example of a footballer who perhaps he hadn't had the best guidance or the best education when he was was young, but he was a prodigious footballer who won a huge number of trophies with Manchester United. But controversy's never been far away from him. He's always been um, his own worst enemy. And that's that's caused its own problems for him. Uh, there's been allegations of um, impropriety in the past. And then this latest episode has um, has just added to that. Now, you could argue that he's he's in the twilight of his career. He's moved back to his hometown club, his his original club, Everton. He's, he's retired from England duty, so he's perhaps shouldn't be in the limelight as much as um, as when he was 22, 23 at Manchester United. I think I think the the reason I mentioned Wayne Rooney when we were chatting before was it's an example that anyone in the public eye, in sport, in business, in entertainment, needs to be aware that we are not in a world where things can be hushed up anymore. There are always people, everyone is a journalist now, everyone has a smartphone, everyone can take a picture or a video, everyone can tweet something. What used to take weeks or days to, to convert, now someone could, could tweet a picture, as we've seen with cricketers as well. Pictures or videos can be tweeted and published before you know the, they've even finished happening. And that has a huge impact on... Um, the, the reputation of the individuals involved, of the of their brands and their clubs and everyone associated with them. I think what's happened with with Wayne Rooney is just another example that need, that everyone needs to be aware that they have to represent themselves in the best possible light at all times, not just when they're playing football. They could say, well, you know, I'm only a footballer from three o'clock till four forty-five or in the evenings. I shouldn't have to be treading on eggshells to make sure I'm behaving myself 24-7. But unfortunately, that uh, for them, that is the case. You have to be aware that everyone is always watching you. You know, in Wayne Rooney's case, the, the woman concerned, Laura Simpson, she suggested he was very suggestive. 
in some of the comments he made and that he was um, fully fully in, intending to, to misbehave with her. And it, whether or not that was the case, you know, it, it doesn't do his reputation or that of his club any good. And, you know, the, his manager at the time, Ronald Koeman, came out and was very critical because footballers shouldn't be out at, at night during a football season, let alone at any time if they're in a, a marriage and, and with a, a young wife and young children. But I think it's just a reminder to, to everyone that, you know, you, you are constantly under surveillance, you're constantly being watched. Therefore, your behaviour has to match the the brand that you are trying to portray or the brand that you are representing at all times. What about those circumstances when you've got members of the public who will ask for a, a picture or something and the player isn't doing anything wrong and yet the member of the public will apply and catch them out or get them in trouble or that for me, I always am very uh, regretful of, of people doing things like that because, you know, I've got I've got kids and that player will be reticent to sign a, a genuine autograph or talk to a genuine fan because other fans are trying to catch them out. And often the way of doing it is a, is a piece of video or a, a picture on social media where, where the player's being deliberately caught out when they're actually doing something innocent and they're responding in the way that they should do, i.e. interacting with fans. That does happen. It's a very unfortunate thing. Yes, it is. And um, I guess I guess you have to take every example on his own merits what i would say is that you you get a lot of sports people let's take a a fairly recent english footballer like david beckham who although he he had one or two of his own um episodes of controversy the majority of of his meeting of the fans for instance was done in a controlled environment you know if you went to a bar or something it was it was a bar where he all the um, conditions have been put in place where he could have the privacy that he wanted, where he wouldn't be disturbed. If someone is having a um, uh, is is being approached by by fans in a in a bar or what have you, then you know I guess you have to take that on each case on its individual merits. And and if someone then tries to twist that into saying that uh, a a Canada Dry is actually a a double um, a double whiskey and they're drinking the night before a game or two nights before a game or what have you, then it's up to a, a player and his team to address that depending on what the actual truth of the situation is. I think the the lesson for me is that every sports person needs to be absolutely careful and appropriate in everything they do in any, in any public situation. I mean, you even saw with Wayne, Wayne Rooney where, you know, he got involved in, in physical hijinks, um, punch-ups and headbutts and things, I think it was with um, when he was with uh, having a party and, and someone filmed it and that sort of thing. You've just got to be totally aware of the fact that if anyone was filming this now, would they be able to interpret anything in a negative way? Now, if that isn't the case, then if someone twists it or um, tries to spin it into something else, then it's up to you and your team to. Um, to address that accordingly and and set the record straight. And unfortunately, there are times where you do have to dignify a spurious story with with a response, even if you you're inclined not to. But I think um, it's just about being using common sense and not putting yourself in a situation where someone is going to have an opportunity to to wind you up or get something on film that's going to embarrass you. Yeah, I think another thing to add to that is. Um... If you respond positively, continue to respond positively. Actually, when if anything goes wrong on social media or you're on the end of some negative comments, you tend to find these days on social that those people who you've responded positively to come back and defend you on social. And that, sort yes. of, that crowd support is tremendously important. Um, you know, this happened at Colorado Rapids when when I tried to respond to as a head of communications, because I had that role as well as head of digital, I responded to absolutely everything I could on social. So if there was one time I remember we did something, uh, I was praising the supporters for their support and I surprised the 
an individual supporters group, C38, the, the official supporters group, and other supporters saying, well, why are you always praising them, blah, 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 blah. And then the C38 guys came back and said, well, no, look, here's examples of us pra- of, of the club praising all the supporters. So if you are, if you continue to be positive, you know, yeah. the, the, the crowd will defend you. And that's a, that's a, a recent phenomenon out of social media and a positive one. It, it, it insulates good work. You know, yes, absolutely, absolutely. You know, I don't think people should do it cynically, but I think being a good uh, individual, be, um, representing your yourself, your family, your club, your sponsors, your country uh, in the best way you possibly can puts credit in the bank. And people are not human. Everyone makes mistakes occasionally. And if you if you hold your hands up and, and if you have done something wrong and say, you know what, I made a bit of an error there, if you have done something wrong, people don't expect perfection from everyone. They just expect a reasonable behavior. And if someone if someone steps out of line, then they need to be strong enough to accept that and, and admit that and then move and then move on and learn from it. That's the important thing. I think when where where Wayne Rooney's concerned, you know, one of the problems he has is that you know he's one way or the other he's been caught up in controversies that have nothing to do with kicking a football around since pretty much the start of his career and so therefore if he ever says well I've learned my lesson I understand who I'm representing I'm sorry how credible is that as a story it isn't really you know who's going to who's going to believe someone who just says sorry sorry all right i'm sorry i'm sorry but just keeps doing the same thing over and over again let's move on to some issues that might crop up in 2018 one of the ones that you mentioned or you listed down as a as a as a as a communications issue was the premier league rights sale well i think it's i think it's going to be very interesting to see how that is um i think there's there's two levels on one on one i think it's going to be very interesting to see how those Packages are, are um, broken up. The Premier League is as successful as it is because the amount of money that is being spent on TV rights, you know, is huge. It was more than five billion last time, and now there are going to be seven packages. There's going to be games played at peak time. There are going to be um, matches played on Saturday evenings, so prime time television. There are going to be games that are tailored more to um, Asian audiences. And no one broadcaster is going to have the monopoly over those uh, over the Premier League. I think it's going to be very interesting to see how those packages are broken up, whether or not between them, BT Sports and uh, um, Sky still own the lion's share, or whether other broadcasters such as uh, Amazon or uh, Netflix or even Facebook are going to compete and try and get those those rights. And I think that's going to have a, a ramifications for, for fans and for clubs because clubs are going to have to, if the, if the current strategy is maintained, which I have, you know, there have been rumours, but I don't think anything is going to change in terms of clubs being able to negotiate their rights individually. So if the Premier League rights are going to be organized by the premier league then it's 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 entirely conceivable that as a fan of a premier league club you'd need three or four subscriptions just to be able to watch your team play on television now when the costs of going to watch a team live are so high to have three or four subscriptions to be able to watch your team playing all their matches is is going to be a tremendous challenge for premier league clubs because they're going to they're going to find find it's going to be a, a, a real problem to engage with quite as many fans as they have been if there are so many different platforms and channels for those fans to watch or not be able to watch their team performing in. Uh, we have such an amazing product in in Premier League football, and whether or not the next deal is going to amount to five billion or more or less, it's going to be very interesting because obviously that have a knock on effect to what sort of level of players are going to get him um, are going to continue to be coming in to the Premier League? But I think from a fan's perspective, you know, fans are already frustrated. There were rumours that the Arsenal Liverpool game was going to be played on Christmas Eve at late afternoon, 
that caused problems and that was all going to be down to television scheduling and clubs on the one hand don't want to upset the broadcasters because that's what pays their a lot of their income but on the other hand attendances are going to suffer if matches keep being moved to very inconvenient times just to satisfy some of the broadcasters on top of the fact that the audiences on the various channels might not be as high because people just won't be able to afford all the different subscriptions. We've seen this rise for a number of years and you know, people have been arguing that ever since the introduction of Sky and the Premier League in the early 90s that supporters have been less important in terms of the movement of games and, and fans being forced to travel up and down the country at inconvenient times when transport isn't great, etc. And we've seen 20 is plenty a uh, slogan thrown out there by supporters clubs. Uh, I've seen German fans in particular very vocal on ticket pricing. But if ticket prices end up high and the subscription levels end up high, what can you do as a communication specialist to help that messaging when it's all about the money you're paying, isn't it? <laughs> you know, if if the price is high, then then people are going to be annoyed. If the if the if the if the the the, the kickoffs are changed, then people are going to be annoyed. The flip side, of course, is the money coming into the Premier League has made it that mag has helped to make it that magnificent product with the best players in the world coming over here, or, or a lot of them. Yeah, I th I think it it's it's going to be a real challenge for football clubs. Already, you know, clubs obviously have their own content. It's possible to see all the highlights via the, the club's online TV channels or or some of the, the very, very big ones have their own TV channels on cable and satellite already anyway. You know, we've had an instances this year where uh, I think Liverpool, one of their um, radio packages, they didn't make available to any radio station because they wanted to own it themselves. Um, so, you know, the, the Five Lives and the Talk Sports were not able to, to broadcast that because Liverpool wanted to own the content themselves and, and be entirely in control of that, which means that the club is able to, to, you know, if they lose three or four nil or if they three nil up and draw three all, they can put their own slant on that whichever way they want. And I understand why they did that. But if, uh, if fans don't have the opportunity to engage and, and, communicate and actually still feel part of their clubs, particularly in the, as the Premier League becomes far more and more international, that's going to ultimately create challenges because, you know, it, it, fans will only, if, if you're relying on an international audience, then what's going to happen if they just start getting um, threadbare because, because fans can't afford it or because they're not getting the access or feeling that they're part of anything anymore? Let's stay with football. <laughs> The World Cup has got some challenges this time around. Obviously, it's in Russia. There's security issues. They've also had issues over the reputation of FIFA, of course, which, from my understanding, is has has hit them in in terms of sponsorships. There's there's a few. There's always more than a few sponsorship packages still available, which is something you might not have expected for behind the Olympics, the greatest show in in world sport. I would argue. Russia has had a lot of reputational issues. We talked about it earlier. They've had a, a, a lot of reputational issues as far as sporting integrity is concerned. For the World Cup to be there is problematic enough as it is, given that football is an Olympic sport. And therefore, all the problems that Russia has been encountering have a, a, a knock-on effect to the FIFA World Cup, on top of the fact that Russia has, has had various sanctions placed upon it in various areas. And then on top of that, you've got the uh, issue with the, the Russian football fans who don't have a great reputation. I think it's going to be it's going to be concerning. There's, you know, are fans going to get the freedom of movement that they would do for other World Cups? And would they have the uh, the, the security and the, be able to walk around with the feeling as safe as they might do in... Um, at other World Cup or other international sports competitions. I mean, we've seen already, we saw in um, the World Athletics Championships in 2013, I think it was, in Moscow, the attitude towards homosexuality in, in Russia caused some great problems. They're not as um, 
um, liberal as other countries, and therefore there's a sensitivity. There's a sensitivity around that, which means that if gay football fans want to, to go and watch games in Russia, they're going to have to be very careful how they conduct themselves. And this is in an era where rainbow laces are fairly prevalent and where gay marriage and, and civil partnerships are becoming more and more acceptable and, and becoming legally recognised around the world. And then we're going back in time almost to, to somewhere where policies aren't as liberal. I think it's going to be a real challenge for um, for FIFA. And it, I, I mean, moving on to a slightly different issue, but connected to the World Cup, and I think it's interesting that, that Gianni Infantino has talked about this, the video referees. Now, I watched a game recently where um, Lazio were leading 1-0 against Fiorentina, um, which was a few weeks ago on a Sunday night. And... Uh, it was the last couple of minutes and Lazio were right against the ropes waiting um, to try and, try and hold on to their 1-0 lead. And Fiorentina were dominating possession. And all of a sudden, one of the Fiorentina players looked to have um, fallen over with the most blatant foul in the box. Well, that's a penalty. The referee's got to blow the whistle for a penalty. And he didn't. And play continued for another couple of minutes. And I thought, oh, gosh, they've missed out the opportunity to, to equalise there. But then he ran over, um, because in Syria they have the video referees. He ran over to the side of the pitch, looked at the video replay of the incident that I was talking about and uh, gave the penalty which Fiorentina scored and equalised with pretty much the last kick of the game. Gianni Infantino has said that it's very important that video refereeing is going to be um involved in, in the FIFA World Cup in 2018. I think it's a fascinating sideshow because not that it's going to um, distract from any of the other issues that I mentioned about liberalism or uh, um, accepting individuals and fans or, or even just the ultras and the way they behave. But I think it's the fact that, that it's going to be showcased at such a big, high-profile tournament is going to mean that some of the controversy and, and people accusing referees are being corrupt and this, that and the other, is a, uh, is a huge um, development for football. And I think it's, it's going to be fascinating to watch and see whether or not, you know, we've, we've had World Cups in the past where teams have gone out and referees' integrity has been called into play. And on one or two occasions, unfortunately, it's proved to be true. I think it's going to be fascinating to see whether or not video referees amongst the whole mix of this is going to be such a different World Cup to those that we've expected because of the, the way that Russia conducts itself and because of the, the Russian fans and because of the political environment and because of video referees. It's, it's going to be fascinating to see how it all develops and, uh, and how FIFA over the next few months positions this World Cup, given all the challenges that we've discussed. Just final topic, really. What's the future for sport PR? How's it going to change in the next five to ten years, in your opinion? I think more and more we're going to have organisations that, and when I say organisations, I mean clubs who are going to be taking control of their own content and their own stories and their own broadcast rights. It wouldn't surprise me if 10, maybe 15, 20 years from now, that every major club organization, even maybe athletes themselves, they're already doing it on a, um, I wouldn't say an amateur basis now, but you know some of the athletes are still doing already doing their Facebook lives and such like. It wouldn't surprise me if if we move to a, an era where individual teams and players are selling selling rights for their own competitions. Um, year passes or season tickets to watch every game and every interview online, because let's be honest, you know the watching sport live these days or um, on a television on a you know the days of watching TV on a black and white and having to watch it live because there's no other way to watch it. Those days are over. People are watching content when and how they want it, and I think that's going to have a huge knock-on effect because if people are owning their own content then they're going to be making more money through the sponsors that then are wanting to come to them. But equally, the broadcasters and the newspapers are going to have a real battle on their hands to have the right sort of content. Because if you're, if you're 
a Sky Sports and you go to press conferences and you cover football matches and you get all the controversy and the um, um, intrigue and everything else around a sports event and all of a sudden that's taken away from you and all you can do is talk about something remotely, that may well have a serious knock-on effect to their own businesses. You know, we've already seen it with newspapers that, that um, you know, as an industry, newspapers are, are struggling because who wants to read news which is 6, 10, 8, 12, 18 hours old? Everyone wants things that are live, which is why everyone has smartphones. People are going to be able to analyse their audiences in order to find out ways of engaging with them more. And that that's going to leave the traditional media in a, in a far more perilous position. David Alexander, thank you very much. No problem at all. Nice to speak to you, Richard. You've been listening to Sport, Digital and Social with Mr. Richard Clark. Rate, review and subscribe on iTunes. You can find Richard on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram by searching for at Mr. Richard Clark or at his website, MrRichardClark.com.